Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. The life of a chef is often regarded as glamorous and exciting. You may see lots of glamour and excitement on television, but in reality, it's a hard life, exemplified by long hours and frequent financial challenges. But for many, it's the only life imaginable. Chef Nathaniel Zimmett falls directly into that category. From the age of 15, Carolina-born Zimmett knew it was the only life for him. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we sit down with Nathaniel to explore what led him from the Cordon Bleu to the Purple Q Crawl food truck, where his culinary life in New Orleans began. Along the way, Zimmett just kept rolling. From Hurricane Katrina to a near-fatal shooting in 2011, the unstoppable Nathaniel has risen to the top again and again. So has Troy Ball, a charming Southern belle who became the first lawful female distiller of traditional Appalachian moonshine in the South. Troy's tale of personal and financial struggles to get there, while always putting her two special needs children first, is both harrowing and inspiring. If life is getting you down, the tale of these two survivors is sure to lift you up on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hello, my name is Nathaniel Zimmett. I'm the chef and owner of Boucherie and Bure Restaurant in Uptown. Nathaniel Zimmett is an unstoppable force of nature. Drawn to the restaurant business at the age of 15, the North Carolina native set the ambitious goal to own his first restaurant by the age of 30. On the heels of food truck fame, he opened Boucherie in New Orleans at 29. Less than two years later, Nathaniel was the victim of a violent crime, which he survived. With the help of the city's restaurant community, he bounced back and today is thriving. We join Nathaniel inside Boucherie in Uptown New Orleans, where the ambitious chef shared his story with us. So I've, I've kind of always had a direction that I wanted to push into and have always had goals that I outlined for myself. And, and that's, I, I think that's how my brain works. I think I always surprise people at how um, direct I am and how driven, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to have a goal and if I don't have a goal I start to feel a little listless much like if I'm sitting on a Sunday or Monday morning on the sofa it makes me crazy I can last about 30 minutes before I just jump up and do something I hate it honestly I, I've only really ever worked in restaurants and there's an allure to all of the 
the sounds to all of that action around you. There's never a dull moment. There's never a chance to sit and be quiet, which I think even as a young child, I don't think I wanted. (laughs) And what was that first restaurant job? How did it begin? Uh, My very first restaurant job was a buffet-style restaurant in Hillsboro, North Carolina called Oliver's, and I was a server. I think I was 15. I had bright eyes and an excitement to eat French fries. (laughs) (laughs) And I went from there to be the manager of the Blade and Fin, a concession stand at the ice skating rink in town. The owner of the place did festivals as well, and so I would get to go on long weekends to the coast and do festivals, and um, honestly, it was hilarious. In a sense, I think I've always been a carny. I would literally just scream at people all day with a smile on my face while I was cooking food and just hooting and hollering, and I've always, always enjoyed that. Then I went on to college. I went to Wake Forest University, and uh, about three and a half years into my communications degree, I realized, what was I going to do with a communications degree? How is that going to get me into a restaurant? I knew I wanted to own restaurants. I, I had not cooked at most of the jobs I had at that point, um, but I just wanted it. And I realized as I was thinking late night one night that in order for me to kind of be in control of the restaurant, I needed to become the chef. So I needed to learn how to cook for real. So I started researching culinary schools and I found that Le Cordon Bleu offered some pretty amazing programs Um, internationally. uh, I had been going to university, so I didn't really need to get an associate's degree. I wasn't interested in taking relatively remedial math and uh, more basic English. So I I recognized immediately what I needed was kind of a fast track into the cooking realm. So Le Cordon Bleu seemed like the appropriate school. Uh, It's lovingly referred to as a wonderful culinary school for wealthy housewives (laughs) around the world. Um, so for me in London, it just, everything clicked all of a sudden I knew this is what I was supposed to be doing. Everything worked in my brain and culinary school just was my, it it made sense. It was, uh, like reading a really good book, you know, (laughs) after training, Nathaniel brought his newly acquired skills home to North Carolina, where chef Shane Ingram transformed him into a seasoned professional at Durham's fine dining establishment, Four Square. I remember I would bring him food, and it was about three months into working for him, and everything I would bring him to taste, of course. And he looked at me one day, and he goes, what the hell is this? What are you doing? And I'm like, chef, I don't know what you what do you mean? I'm making sure you like this. He goes, everything you bring me, you think it's exactly how I want it. And I'm like, well, that's kind of my job. Yes, chef, that's what I'm doing. And I feel like I've, I'm trying to get so that every time you taste it, it's right. And he goes, stop doing that. I want you to make it how you want to make it, not how you think I want it. And I'll never forget that. It's the, that's why he's my mentor. <laughs> After two years under Ingram's tutelage, in 2004, 
Zimmet pursued a girlfriend to New Orleans, where he initially worked under Gerard Maris's watchful eye in the early days of Ralph's on the Park. However, barely a year later, the Katrina evacuee was living in Florida with his father, unsure of the future. This was 05. I thought barbecue. I just thought that was what was going on. That was going to be the new trend in the country, and I was really into it. And I remember having dinner with my dad, and he goes, well, why don't, have you considered a, a food truck? And I said, a food truck? I don't understand what you're talking about. I had very, very limited um, exposure even to those at that time. And he goes, well, think about it. If Katrina happens again, you can pack it all up and get your butt out of there, and you don't have to worry about losing anything. And I said, that makes a lot of sense. And he goes, well, if you formulate a business plan, if you come up with a business plan, I'll co-sign a loan for you. When he returned to New Orleans in 2006, Nathaniel brought along a fully equipped, custom-built food truck, painted K&B purple. He christened his new kitchen on wheels the Q-Crawl, a name that would soon be associated with late-night bites, especially among the music-loving set. All of a sudden, I was the food truck at Tipitina's for the next at least five or six years. So every single show, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, the Fado Do's on Sundays, I was even out there doing that. And so it became a little intense yeah. because during the week I would do movie catering and then commercial sets. Looking back, I mean, you know, people talk about how, how many hours they work. And, and I, that first five years, I was rocking like real 100 hours every single week. So when does Boucherie happen? So Boucherie happens uh, in 08. And I remember just being like, I love that little house. Yeah, that sounds cool, you know. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> and that, and that kind of got me into my goal, which was I wanted to own a restaurant by the time I was 30. And you were 29. 29. <laughs> then it all kind of, so we're, we're kind of reaching this, this crescendo, right? So I've got the food truck. I've slowly stopped doing the, the tipitinas because I'm running out of time. I have the catering that I'm kind of starting to question, but I'm also at this point doing a lot of external catering. Then boucheries really pop in and, and things are really going well. And then, then, then it's like, it's like when the, the air starts to crackle too much, like, then lightning, right? And there's so much energy in the air, I get shot. <laughs> and that's kind of where everything kind of pushed me back down. Coming up next, our conversation with Nathaniel Zimmett continues as he recalls the senseless crime that nearly cost him his life. We also learn how Nathaniel's experience with bland hospital food drove him to improve the quality of school lunches for Crescent City kids. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. 
now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with Nathaniel Zimmett the unstoppable chef and owner of Boucherie and Bure restaurants in Uptown New Orleans. Nathaniel first made his mark in the city in 2006, selling boudin balls and pulled pork out of a purple food truck dubbed the Q-Crawl. In 2008, his bricks-and-mortar restaurant Boucherie made its debut to rave reviews and busy crowds, wowed by Nathaniel's contemporary Southern menu. When we left off, it was 2011. In addition to running Boucherie and the food truck, Nathaniel had his hands full with a catering business and was even planning a new restaurant in the Marigny. 100-hour work weeks were the young chef's norm as he grabbed any and every opportunity to share his passion for food with the city. One of those opportunities came in May of that year, feeding festival-goers at the annual Bayou Boogaloo event in Mid-City. We had been doing festivals just because, again, talk, thinking about you know, a, a younger me, I, was, I loved the, the fun of it. It's so much fun. You're slinging a lot of food, and you're just out in front of people, and you get this opportunity. It's a sim- similar to the food truck, right, where you, you get to have an audience, and, and there's that immediate gratification when somebody has something and they love it and they turn back around and say this is awesome you know and so I was really really keyed on that to adequately feed the festival Sunday crowds Nathaniel found himself working in Boucherie's kitchen late that Saturday night sometime after 2 a.m. the exhausted chef got in his pickup truck and made the seven-minute drive to his uptown home for a quick nap and I fell asleep in my truck for a bit because I had to be back to work by seven or so. And I woke up and I get out of my truck and I go to my, I had a gate in front of my house at the time and, and I'm getting towards the gate and I noticed that somebody is walking towards me. Nathaniel paused. He didn't recognize the man approaching him. As the stranger drew near, the chef became apprehensive. And I've been robbed before. I've been... I had a guns pulled on me, but this was just a different experience. It, I immediately knew something was wrong. I could immediately feel something bad, so much so that I didn't want to open up my door. I ran back to my vehicle because I felt like that was a safer move for me. Nathaniel threw open the door to his pickup truck, shutting it behind him as he turned the key in the ignition. And by the time I get in the truck and I turn it on and he's knocking on the, the window with, with a gun, and I roll down the window and we talk for a couple minutes and he shoots me. 
Um, he shoots me in the chest and I grab his gun and I try to rip, wrench it from his hand and he shoots me again and that one goes in my arm and out my arm and that one lands in my back and then uh, he shoots me a third time and it goes in my one side and it goes out my other flank and um, then I just start raising like I'm screaming and, and uh, he takes off and I remember I open up the door and I stand up and I'm like oh man I don't know about all this. So I fell back down into my truck and I just started laying on the horn. And uh, my neighbor, his son, woke up. He was like seven. He woke up and he woke his dad up. And he, his dad is an old military man and um, came out. And luckily I was on the operating table 45 minutes after I was shot. Nathaniel was in critical condition when paramedics rushed him to the LSU Trauma Center. Several hours later, he was moved out of the ICU. As the sun rose that morning, word of the shooting reached Boucherie. Nathaniel's business partner at the time, who he was supposed to be working with that day, rallied the troops. I remember my ex-business partner, he went and knocked on a person's door, Adrian, who had worked for me, woke her up and was like, you know, Nathaniel was shot, and like everything just kind of dropped, you know, and they made the decision. They were out at the Bayou Boogaloo the next day on Sunday, and they just decided, you know what, we're going to do what he would want, and we're going to put our, shut our mouths and get to work. And uh, it was something, man. It was really something. The restaurant's crew donated their day's tips to Nathaniel's recovery fund, the beginning of what became a massive outpouring of financial support from the New Orleans food community over the next few weeks. In my entire life, and I am 42, there probably have been three years that I did not have health insurance, and this was in that three-year span. Luckily, we had benefits, there were fundraisers, I mean, what a lovely experience. A beer benefit, a concert, and restaurant specials and eateries across town were among the fundraisers organized. While Nathaniel was recovering, the number of people who showed up to dine at Boucherie in support of him exceeded the building's capacity. How lucky of a human am I that I'm in this city that, that would support me in a way like that. And, and to have the, the, the love and to see the compassion of those around me. And this is one of the reasons why I feel like I'm, New Orleans is my home, you know? I, I, I don't know, obviously I can't speculate on what, if this had happened to me somewhere else. However, you know, the, the, the community that I'm a part of, the, the city, that makes me want to be that much more a part of it, you know? Why did the guy shoot you? I just think he wanted, I don't, I honestly I have no idea. Like, I don't think he was trying to rob me. I don't think he was really trying to get anything from me. We didn't know, we certainly didn't know each other, but I- Did they ever catch him? No, no, no. That uh, ever spook you that like the dude's still out there? You know, honestly, I saw him once. It was out in front of my, the same house. I lived in the same house for about two more years. Um, didn't feel unsafe. And you know, I, I think what I had to do is I don't know you know you deal with we, people deal with things how people deal with things um, I, I feel that I knew I wanted to walk I knew I wanted to run I knew that I couldn't harp on it because if I did then I wouldn't and um, 
I, I felt as I feel today that I feel sorry for him, not as much for me. You know, I, I was very lucky, uh, first of all, to not have any real long-term effects. Strangely, 99% of the people who are shot like that are die. You know, I was in and out of the hospital for a few years. Um, but the individual that is capable of doing that probably needs to be looked at more than the person who it happened to, you know? But it um, must give you a tremendous amount of personal, just belief in yourself that you're such a survivor. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard one. And, and, you know, I've been in therapy plenty, uh, and I usually get to a point where I'm like, all right, I know this is what I need to deal with, and I, I don't know how much further I can open my brain or open my, my body up to it. Um, but, you know, we're, we're trying. I think the, 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 the happiness that I get from my family, the humbleness that I experienced from my community coming around me so strongly, that's what I take from it, and that's the memories that I, I choose to hold on to. It just seems absurd to harp on something else. In 2014, Zimmet expanded his Carrollton Avenue footprint by opening Bourree, a casual wing and daiquiri spot where his boucherie charcuterie is also available by the pound. Today, Nathaniel has become laser-focused on school lunch programs. By adding a shipping container onto Boucherie's tiny kitchen, he drastically expanded capacity. Currently the provider for St. Andrew's and St. George's private schools, his five-year goal is to make a difference in New Orleans' public and charter school system. So I guess because your life changed so much in 2011, somehow in those five ensuing years, you managed to slow it down enough to find a girl and have a relationship? Correct. <laughs> I managed to... I managed to get my priorities straight, or, ah. or, or I, I had begun reprioritizing my life, is what I would say. Okay. Um, family is, is really big to me, and if anything, the community, that, that love that comes around is just so important, and I, I realized that previously I was kind of pushing that out, you know, and just working, and kind of, the beautiful thing about working a lot is you, you can easily forget about everything else. Mm -hmm. The horrible thing about working a lot is you lose sight of everything else and, and those around you tend to forget about you. Um, so I, I really focused on trying to change that and be more than that. I, I did not like coming home to an empty house. I got married in March in 2016 uh, and we had a child three years ago, Jocelyn. So Jocelyn comes along. How has she changed your life? She is, uh, she's changed me in a lot of ways. Really refocused me on what is the most important things, what are the most important things in my life. And um, as such, I think I operate differently. I, I certainly don't work the hours that I used to work. Um, and I, I kind of honestly, I shifted. I tend to work during the day a lot more. I want to be home. I want to see dinner. I want to not be an absent father. Um, I want to not be an absent husband. Um, really, I, I started to focus a little bit more heavily on my school lunch programs. 
So how did that even happen? So did, did it happen because of Jocelyn? No, no. You know, honestly, in a, in a way that comes back to being in the hospital as well. You know, the very first meal, two weeks after being shot, I was served at the hospital some, uh, let's say, not high-quality sausage. I <laughs> say that with, with grits and scrambled eggs and about two of those little bottles of Tabasco, those little glass bottles of Tabasco. Thankfully, uh, I think my mom had them in her purse. <laughs> mm. And I just remember thinking, this is garbage. How is this supposed to be helpful for me in, in getting better? You know, I, I just started thinking again more and more about how important nutrition is for children especially and making young adults, making people who are functional and capable of learning and you know nutrition is just crucial inside of all of that. So I, I really feel that with this position I'm going to be able to make a difference and, and, and I mean how cool is it that the story comes from food? Nathaniel, this was such an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you very much as well. It was great speaking with you. That was Nathaniel Zimmett, chef and owner of Boucherie and Bure Restaurant in Uptown New Orleans. the story behind that knife I'm always wearing around my neck? Stay tuned, and we'll share the entire tale when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What's the story behind that knife I'm always wearing around my neck? After surviving the 2011 senseless shooting, Chef Nathaniel Zimmett had racked up enormous medical bills and was facing additional surgeries without any health insurance. The New Orleans food community sprang into action. A fund was started on his behalf, and a major benefit 
dubbed Beasts and Brass, was held at the Howling Wolf in July of that year. Chefs, musicians, and brewmasters alike came together to help. Local jewelry artist Thomas Mann was inspired to create some special culinary jewelry accessories on Nathaniel's behalf, donating them to the silent auction. I managed to win both the tiny copper saucepot earrings often found dangling from my lobes, along with my amazing Santuco knife. Measuring barely three and a quarter inches in length, the piece was handcrafted personally by Thomas Mann in his New Orleans studio. Inscribed with his signature, along with a special dedication that reads, To NZ, it's simply my favorite piece of jewelry. When Nathaniel did get back on his feet, I'd often see him at the Crescent City Farmer's Market, where I'd hold up the knife and get a big smile and thumbs up from him in return. Both the knife and the sauce pots became part of Thomas Mann's regular jewelry line, where you can still find them available today at thomasmann.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. I'm Troy Ball, the author of Pure Heart, a spirited tale of Grace Gritton Whiskey. I'm also the founder of the first whiskey distillery in America created by a woman. And I currently operate Asheville Distilling Company in Asheville, North Carolina. Troy Ball didn't drink a drop of alcohol until she was 40 years old. Raised in a religious Texas household and educated at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Troy prides herself on her Southern manners. Describing herself as a, quote, Vanderbilt girl, she favors pressed blue jeans and crisp white blouses and never leaves home without her pearl earrings. So how is it that at the age of 50, this charming Southern belle became the first lawful female distiller of traditional Appalachian moonshine in the South? Hers is a tale of personal and financial struggles, unlikely friendships, and a loving mother determined to do what's best for her two special needs sons. Troy, it is an honor to be able to speak with you. After reading Pure Heart, I am definitely one of your biggest fans. Thank you so, so much, Poppy. It always makes my heart warm because I struggled through the writing of that book and probably upset my husband a little bit, too, in the process. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's our story. It's the story of raising two special needs sons and coming out of a a world that was in many ways confined and finding myself at 50 creating a whiskey distillery. Troy, your story really begins in Austin, Texas, when you and your husband, Charlie, had your first son, Marshall, and then Colton. Take us back to that time in Austin and how that huge life occurrence changed your life. Yes. You know, um, I was excited to have my first son, Marshall, and my second son, actually. Um, But when Marshall was born, he was sent home from the hospital healthy. You know, they said he has, you know, normal 
test scores and everything, and he's in good shape. And and then um, he didn't gain weight, and then he didn't learn to hold his head up, and then he didn't learn to roll over. And by the time he was five months old, the pediatrician was starting to get a little alarmed that he was not meeting milestones. And I was in complete denial, of course, because I'm thinking, hey, he's just doing things his way, you know. <laughs> but um, by the time he was nine months old, I really had sort of come to realize that there was something not working correctly with Marshall, um, but they had no diagnosis. And we said, well, if we don't have a diagnosis, we're just going to keep treating him as if he understands everything we're saying and not limit him. That just continue to talk to him and read books to him and treat him as if he was listening. And when he was two, his second brother, Colton, was born. And Colton, too, was sent home from the hospital healthy and fine. And and then by the time he was five months of age, he was having uh, seizures, as Marshall was, it, it turned out. So now I was in my mid-20s, and I had these two children who required total care. And, and really round-the-clock care because of their seizures and uh, the fear that, you know, something would happen to them in the middle of the night. Well, you know, because the boys were medically fragile, we, we just battled with their health. And so the boys would be compromised by allergies, and then they'd get a little virus, and they'd have a pneumonia, and we'd be in the hospital. And then I said you know what, we just have to try taking the boys someplace else. We'll, we'll never forgive ourselves if we didn't try living in a different environment. So we began a, a hunt for the best small towns in America, did Google searches and all that, and Asheville was showing up on all the lists, and I had never heard of it, but I thought, well, this place keeps showing up. We should, we should drive through there and see what we think, and that's what we did. You moved there, and all of a sudden... A character appears on your doorstep virtually and offers you something called a spider leg. Tell us about Forrest Jarrett and the spider leg. Oh, my gosh. Forrest Jarrett is larger than life. I mean, he's like from a step back in time. At that time, he was maybe 80, somewhere in his early 80s. And he was a local Madison County man who'd grown up here in the hills. And he eventually became chief of the Southern Railway Railroad. So he was politically smart. <laughs> and I think he worked his way right up the chain by handing moonshine out to everybody. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Even to this day, he takes moonshine to the politicos. <laughs> it's like a joke. You know, it's like all in fun. Oh, now don't tell anybody I brought you some moonshine. You know, that kind of thing. Let's just have a little spider leg. And I was looking at him like, what is this? And he goes, oh, you know, it's just that little bitty drizzle that runs down the side of a glass when you pour the moonshine in the in the jar. It runs down like like they do wine, fine wine. Yes. Well, basically, this is the legs, but he calls them the spider legs. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, opened the jar and took a little tiny sniff, and oh my gosh, you know, it burns your nose hair. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, when I when I put a dab on my tongue, it just burned like crazy. And I and I put the lid back on and and I just stored it. I didn't tell him I I didn't drink it because I didn't want to offend him. You know, he was kind to bring it to me. And after a while, these these jars are just accumulating at my house because he keeps bringing them. 
And um, eventually I just got my nerve up and I said, Forrest, you know, I really just don't like this moonshine. I I think you should give it to somebody who would enjoy it more. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, Troy, don't you know the good stuff never leaves the home place? (laughs) And I'm like, what are you talking about, Forrest? He goes, I'm saying the good stuff is kept at home. So a couple of months go by and here comes Forrest up in my driveway one day. And he pulls out another jar of moonshine and says, I've got something special. And I'm like, oh, God, please, not another <laughs> jar of moonshine. And he goes, no, this is the keeper kind. I promise. And uh, so I called my sister. I said, you got to come over here because Boris brought the keeper kind of moonshine. And I want you to taste it. And so she came over that afternoon and she tasted it. And she says, my gosh, it is good. And so then I had to try it. And, and I was very surprised by the difference. Mm. And um, that night, I had a group of women friends coming over who were supposed to be learning how to crew from me. And I happened to ask them, would they like to try some of this keeper kind of moonshine? And they're like, well, sure. So I bring the jar of moonshine out and some fruit juice. And oh, my God, those five women drank the whole jar. No kidding. I woke up the next morning and I thought, I wonder if that kind of white whiskey is on the market. And what made me think of that was something Ross Perot had said years ago. Ross said, if you want to be successful in a business, you need to study an industry and figure out what's missing. And then that's what you need to focus on because there'll be a demand for something that's not available. And I remembered it that morning and I thought I should go down and buy whatever's available and taste it. Well, I bought three products, brought them home, called my sister and said, come back over. We've got to taste these. (laughs) (laughs) And and so we tasted the three products and they were not anything like what he had brought us. And that was it. Boy, from that second on, I was on, I was on very focused on trying to talk Forrest into introducing me to some men that would teach me how to make this moonshine. I basically ended up on a hunt trying to find somebody who made really good whiskey. And that was difficult because a lot of the guys were just making it kind of more for fun than for trying to create a seriously good product. They weren't personally going to drink it. I learned from these old men up in the mountains that there is a pure heart piece of the distillation. And if you just capture the pure heart of the distillation, you are going to get clean, lovely whiskey that doesn't give you a headache and that tastes wonderful and does not burn your mouth. They were selling the the heads and tails and keeping the middle, the hearts, for themselves. (laughs) When I discovered that, I was like, oh my gosh. When I got home, I went out and I bought a pressure cooker because this guy, Clyde, was using a pressure cooker as a still. (laughs) And, And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, 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 this works fine. So I buy this pressure cooker and I bring it home and I bought the pieces and parts so that we could modify that little pressure cooker and turn it into a still. And once I had done that, then I needed to find some corn. And you found a really special heirloom variety of corn called Crooked Creek Corn. It's just another little bit of serendipity that fell into your lap in the name of John McIntyre. Yes, John McIntyre's family had had it on their family farm for seven generations. John then becomes a a vital part of your potential business. 
Oh, he he was like a gift from the gods. I mean, it was <laughs> he, John McIntyre is a gentle giant. You know, he's just this lovely, sweet man who's very smart and clever and dependable. And he, and I eventually was able to convince him that if I got a federal permit, could we set up a little test distillery out at his farm? And he agreed once he knew I was going to be legal. Once I got that little permit, we set up the distillery out there, which was only in an 18 by 21 foot building. I mean, it's a small little building. And he would get up at five in the morning because that's what time he always got up. So he would start the still. If I wanted to test filtering the whiskey through some sort of exotic charcoal, the next day I'd get there and he would have a bag of charcoal made from cherry wood. I could never have created this distillery without the help of John McIntyre and, for that matter, the help of Forrest Jarrett. I like to say that these are guys with pure hearts, too. Just as Troy prepared to assemble the final elements needed to take her moonshine to market, the financial markets crashed. Up until then, her husband, Charlie, had made a good living as a residential real estate developer. But when the real estate market tanked, the family was faced with financial ruin. It was it was just terrible. It was terrible. You know, you remember 2008? I mean, how six million people in America lost their homes and the real estate market crashed everywhere. Well, we got caught in that. And, you know, I was in the throes of creating the moonshine business when all of this happened. We were just producing our first thousand cases of whiskey when we basically had to leave our home. Mm. And it was devastating. And I was traumatized by worrying about what I was going to do with my boys who had to have, you know, a place to live where I could function with them in wheelchairs and I could give them a bath. You know, I mean, it was not, it's very complicated to have that level of special needs uh, people in your life. You can't just go anywhere and do things simply. Well, you're, you're such an amazing person, Troy, because, you know, now you realize that you've got to somehow really make this business run because you got to take care of everybody. And yet mm-hmm. you keep doing the right thing and... The world was just not giving you a break between the still from Germany that's giving you troubles, the bottles turn into a boondoggle, even the labels become a crazy thing, and then the corks give you a surprise. It was uh, it was one thing after the next. There's funny things that happened during during that trying to get the distillery open and intense things that happened. The whole thing was a huge learning curve, and we and we got through it all. And thankfully, we the concept of making pure heart whiskey paid off because people appreciated the quality of the spirit. We had a white spirit that was American born that could be used in cocktails, and it seemed so logical to me that that there could be a rebirth for American white whiskey or moonshine. And we, you know, we ended up getting our product in some of the kind of coolest restaurants that were around in the South and also 
on the big prestigious properties like Disney. So, you know, at the end of the day, despite the fact that (laughs) we didn't have a clue what we were doing, I didn't have a clue for sure, uh, we worked our way through a lot of struggles and and we produced a product that won gold medals and and makes a killer cocktail. That was my objective. (laughs) Who would have thought? Who would have thought? And who would have thought that the woman who is the first female whiskey distiller in America also has a special needs son who becomes a best-selling author. I mean, talk about a happy ending to a book. Yeah, well, you know, Marshall's book was just, you know, he wrote a book, right? It was a um, compilation of things he had written between the ages of five and ten years. So we went back through all of his notebooks. He selected the pieces, and then they were bound into a book called Kiss of God. And that became a huge bestseller because Oprah Winfrey discovered Marshall's book. I can't even begin to explain the power of of that. You know, um, instantly the book was a huge bestseller and sold. Uh, it was published in five languages and sold all over the world. So Marshall just had a re-release of Kiss of God for its 20th anniversary edition. Incredible. And I am shocked, really, and happy to say that he cultivated a friendship with Chris Martin from Coldplay. And Chris wrote the introduction to the re-release of Kiss of God. Can you believe that? No, it's incredible. It's unbelievably generous of, of somebody like a rock star like that to take his time to do something like this for Marshall. Well, it seems to me, now that I know your story as well as I do, thanks to your beautiful book, that your whole life, despite all the adversities that you got handed, God seemed to always have a bushel full of kisses for you, didn't he? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, there are times in your life when you wonder, right? But it has been rich in content and in love. It's been, I have found amazing people scattered around the country who have supported me or Marshall in, in, in their ways. And I, I've had to become a much stronger person because of some of these things. And, and I think that that's okay. You know, that, that's what was needed. Where do we go? Nobody knows. Troy Ball, founder of Asheville Distilling Company and author of Pure Heart, a spirited tale of grace, grit, and whiskey. God, give me style and give me grace. God, put a smile upon my face. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. I've got big news about our upcoming monthly Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch, held on the last Sunday of every month at Tujac's Restaurant. This family-friendly event includes three courses, four drag queens, and of course, bottomless mimosas. On Sunday, August 28th, 
we've invited our friends Bo Cialino and Matt Armato to bring their housewarming magic to our drag brunch. They'll be signing books and mixing and mingling, sharing all those at probably this tricks you've learned from them on Instagram. Don't miss the fun. Reservations may be had online and by calling 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have more than 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.